It's about keeping data from getting siloed into different domains where everybody's kind of creating their own definition and having it all in one place where it's discoverable and usable so that you know, the dashboards that everybody needs to use to make decisions all reflect consistent definitions, for instance. Hello and welcome to Good Data, Better Marketing, the ultimate guide to driving customer engagement. Today's episode features an interview with Kendall Timmers, Senior Vice President and Head of Data and Insights at the New York Times. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. Looking for clean, reliable data you can trust? Segment collects, cleans, and allows you to activate your data in real time across hundreds of applications and channels. Learn about how Segment can help you personalize customer experiences by visiting segment.com. People might think data and emotion are opposites. The unsexy stuff, like definitions and processes, these are the nitty-gritty details that allow marketers to make campaign decisions and build audiences. But in the publishing world, data also serves as the foundation for emotion. With the advent of AI technologies like natural language processing, we're able to capture topics, themes, and yes, even emotions within an article. This new data set allows advertisers to match their campaigns with an article's tone, inciting emotional responses, and in turn, delivering higher conversions for the advertiser. Knowing how to implement these tactics has made Kendall Timmers an industry leader in her role as SVP and Head of Data and Insights at The New York Times. In this episode, Kendall and I discuss NLP, personalizing paywalls, and creating a unified view of the customer in a privacy-forward way. Kendall, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to start off to get to know you a little bit better and your career journey a little bit more deeply. As I understand it, before the New York Times, you were at American Express, ZS Associates, and U.S. Airways. But before we get there, I want to go back a little bit further. Kendall, what was your first job? (laughs) Well, I grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, so naturally it's chocolate-related. I worked at a place called Chocolate World in basically what was an all-chocolate grocery store. So fun fact, I actually put out my back lifting chocolate improperly, which was a a really fun visit to the ER to explain exactly what I had done to myself. (laughs) That is a very unique occupational hazard. I hadn't considered that for a chocolate store employee. I also have a bad back, so I really empathize with, you know, (laughs) starting off your job like that. So I'm so sorry. I feel like that might go one of two ways. Do you love chocolate or do you hate chocolate? Oh, no, I very much love chocolate and I'm very biased towards Hershey. In fact, after working there, it was probably several decades before I ate M&Ms again, just out of company loyalty. A brand loyalist. Marketing works. I love it. That's amazing. Um, I'm a dark chocolate lover myself. I don't have a brand bias necessarily. I also have a weird thing where I sneeze when I eat anything that's 78% or over. I don't know what is with that. It's very specific. Yeah. If there's any doctors in the house that want to tell me why I sneeze when I have a certain percentage of cocoa, keep me posted. Okay. So after your Hershey ER days, you probably took a few different steps in a little bit of a different direction. What happened from there in your career journey? How did you get to where you are today at the New York Times? Yeah. So I always tell everybody I did my education backwards. So I do think for a lot of analytically based careers, 
you need some kind of background in numbers and you need some kind of understanding of how businesses work. So a lot of people, they'll get like a technical undergrad and then polish it off with an MBA on the top. I did it the other way around because I did not realize that I liked math until I hit calculus. And 18-year-old Kendall thought, oh, it's too late to get into math now at 18. So I majored in business. And then I only realized in my first job out of school, like, oh, wait, no, I want something much more technical than this. I really wanted to, to be you know, deeper in the math of it. Uh, so I ended up going back to school to get a master's degree in operations research. And the reason I love OR so much is... It basically provides you with this whole tool set for how to solve a whole bunch of analytic and business problems, almost agnostic of what the problem is. It's just the tool set. That's amazing. I love Calc too. It's also so funny to be like, at 18, you're so young that you're just kind of dismissing an entire career path because you didn't like it for elementary school, basically. But I love that you challenged yourself and, and went back. You positioned that in a really cool way, too, the fact that you're aiming to provide a tool set for problem solving with data without regard, agnostic to what the problem actually is. I love that kind of definition of what OR does. So tell me a little bit about you know, how you've done that at American Express and The Times. Well, first at Amex, I was there for about 12 years and I did a whole bunch of things, you know, from loyalty campaigns to prospecting. My last role there, I owned all the prospect data, whether it was in the DMP or whether it was mail and, you know, mailing addresses and emails. And, you know, really we were focusing all our time on what is the right data and the right way to reach out to people to make them aware of our product and and to get them to convert. And then when I went to the New York Times, I was actually switching my perspective. I, I kind of had to convince them that because I knew what I wanted when I was more of a marketer, I could tell them as an advertiser what the marketers who they were talking to would want from a data perspective. And so I started off on advertising side uh, at the times, but what I run now is the whole data group, which kind of runs the gamut from you know, helping to maximize our subscriptions, working on making sure we get the right reach for our journalism, increasing engagement, and marketing and advertising. That's amazing. So it sounds like a lot of what you do reaches out across tons of different departments and and business partners, and you've become really critical to the way that a lot of these folks actually make decisions. You know, you mentioned loyalty, advertising, user engagement. Those are, you know, all kind of music to my ears as a marketer. And I can definitely tell you that I wouldn't be able to do my job without people like you. So thank you. And I'm, I'm not alone, actually. We actually did a recent survey, our growth report, came out recently, and we found out that 85% of marketers believe that their roles are becoming more data-driven. And in the past year, they feel like they've become more data-driven. And so data has really just become this competitive asset that powers decision-making across every single team in the organization. The ability for your team to kind of be that centralized resource of excellence is really incredible. So something I'm curious about, you've been in analytical and tech roles for a long time in different industries, and especially industries that I feel like have had a major shift towards digital. What are some of those major industry trends that you're currently seeing and following? 
I think the biggest one is that scramble to truly understand your customer, like really get that unified customer view and to do it in a privacy forward way. And those two things, I think often in the industry, they're seen as being in opposition. But one of the things I'm really happy about working at the Times is we've really been able to do things that accomplish both, that allow us to understand our customers, but to do so in ways that respect not just the letter of the law, but also the spirit of of the law with privacy. That's a big part of it. An example of that would be first-party data. So we are large enough to have a good base of subscribers and registered users for whom we can understand how they use our product and to be able to take that information and turn it into first-party audiences. And we we tried this experiment, um, I guess, about two years ago, and our first-party audiences were so successful that we were actually able to get rid of third-party. So on our sites, we only use first-party data for audiences and just completely got rid of third. That's amazing. And I mean, I'm sure you, you might imagine. We've talked about privacy quite a few times on this podcast, but I think what you just said of a lot of people think it's an opposition. And I've said this before, that there's this like paradox that people think exists between privacy and personalization. You just prove that it doesn't exist, right? If you are collecting the right data in the right ways, then you can build audiences and maintain the conversions. And you're just calling out something that's really interesting, which is a win for all of the different groups that you service, for your readers, for your advertisers, for yourself. So I think that that's really interesting that you can create those relevant, personalized, performative ads and probably reduce costs from third-party vendors too? Yeah, yeah, we no longer buy third-party data at all. That's amazing. So, I mean, that ability to reduce costs, I think is, especially in this macro environment right now, really, really interesting. Again, from that growth report that I was talking about, we were talking to, I think it was like 1,500, maybe 2,000 marketers, and 93% of them say they're taking steps to adapt to this current macro environment, but 63% of them are looking to decrease spending on marketing tech. So the ability to take out, you know, some third party resource and and only use your first party data, certainly interesting. And it sounds like you guys are a bit ahead of the curve as it comes to some of the privacy conversations, which often comes up as a challenge that people are going through. But what are some of those biggest challenges that you're facing at the Times? Well, so I'll speak from more from a data standpoint, but I think like many organizations, we're trying to rethink how our data is organized. I'm kind of anti-buzzword. And so, you know, I hear the words data mesh and I cringe, but but I think that's exactly <laughs> what we actually need. So, you know, when I joined the Times, I was really pleasantly surprised. Hey, all our data is together in one place. That's leaps and bounds forward from what I'd experienced before. And it's really helpful. But, you know, there's always a desire for more data and to get the data in the right places. We actually need to go past just getting all the data together and we need to get it together in a way in which people can actually use it. So it's about keeping data from getting siloed into different domains where everybody's kind of creating their own definition and having it all in one place where it's discoverable and usable so that the dashboards that everybody needs to use to make decisions all reflect consistent definitions, for instance. You know, there was an example we had. We had two dashboards that were talking about our audience numbers 
And one of them included cooking and games, and the other one just included core news. But they both used the same word to talk about audience, the same definition. And then when that was pointed out to both of them, they both changed it. So now the one that had cooking and games took it off and the one that didn't put it on. (laughs) So they still disagreed. So, you know, having a place where you can say, like, especially if you're a new person who's trying to build your first dashboard, oh, what's the definition of audience? There are like 50 definitions in here. Which one should I use and why and where? And how do we name them differently so that people understand what this audience is versus that one? And make sure that we're telling consistent stories so that people can make consistent business decisions. I love that you're calling that out. I've encountered that so many times in my career. And I feel like the the first couple of months, mainly what you're trying to do is figure out how things are defined so that you can really understand kind of your scope and your your ability to influence things in an organization because you're right, definitions and naming are so, so critical. And to your point on data silos, we hear that all the time. An incomplete view of that customer everything becomes more expensive, more challenging. It's just, it's a mess. And and bringing that all together really helps make sure that that customer experience is improved, that you're actually speaking to the customer in the right way at the right time. Something that I think is a little bit squishier maybe as well, but really important when it it relates to data management is that it can make or break trust in an organization if everybody thinks that something is, yeah, named a different thing there can be some interesting conversations that you have to reconcile. And so having that up front is is super critical and important. So knowing that those definitions are really important, how would you define good data? I think I'd say good data is accurate, actionable, and findable. So obviously the most important part is that it's right. And so if you're building a data organization, you have to build in QC processes and alerts And I think everybody's got some version of that, but everybody could probably stand to make that a little better. And on alerts in particular, there's always this tightrope you have to walk between you don't have enough alerts to prevent the things that are really important, or you have so many alerts that everybody just ignores them because they're getting 15 mornings a day. That's (laughs) that's not helpful either. So, So figuring out that balance. On the actionable side, can you actually use it to make a business decision? And some of that has to do with timing. So, you know, knowing that a reader completed a particular article is really useful to know quickly, but could become less and less helpful over time. You know, a year from now, I don't know how much particular information that gives me. And for findable, it goes without saying, if you can't find it, you can't use it. And that again goes back to the, you know, if I'm new here and I want to know, how do I figure out what a page view is, and you either can't find it or you find 30 things called page view, like that's not findable. Yeah, definitely not. You're just, for me, it's like searching in Looker and finding like a million different things that say the exact same thing, but mean totally completely different things. Um, Exactly. And I love the fact that you mentioned time. I mean, time decay, especially in my world is so, so important. The ability to act on that real-time information is super important to be able to personalize those interactions and really drive conversions. The most obvious thing that comes to mind is like cart abandoners, right? If you get that email a week after you put shoes in your cart or whatever, you're probably not going to convert as readily as you would if it's 
today or, you know, within a couple hours. So that's really important. And one of the ones that we hear about now all the time, too, is real-time audience suppression. So being able Mm -hmm. to understand exactly who that person is that purchased, you don't want to serve them that ad, right? And that's going to save you tons of money as well, which is kind of a really cool way to make sure that you're doing, you know, the most for the business and kind of being an owner and acting like an owner. What are some of the ways that you're using this good data across the New York Times? Any tactics or programs that you're willing to share? So one of the ones we've we've spoken about a little bit recently that I've been excited about for years uh, is dynamic meter. So this is this is maybe not the first thing that pops to people's mind when they think about personalization, but it's really important. When we started having a paywall back in, I think it was 2011, it was a fixed paywall. So at the beginning of the month, you had X number of articles. When those articles were out, you couldn't read anymore unless you subscribed. And over time, we realized that we could be actually a little more granular with this. So we want to be able to base how many articles you have on the customer's usage. So I can use how many articles that you read in the past to be able to predict how many articles I need to give you to get you to convert. So I want to strike that balance between letting the reader kind of sample our product, understand its worth, and actually at some point having to make that sale and make that conversion. And with this, we really have an ability to fine tune that at a more personal level. That's so interesting. So you're telling me that when I'm on Twitter, scrolling around, clicking into New York Times articles, I'm a subscriber, by the way, I just haven't logged in necessarily on Twitter (laughs) all the time. But that article limit that you're showing me is personal to me. That's correct. You're right. It's not the most obvious example of personalization, but I imagine it probably helps a whole lot with your conversion and your customer acquisition costs. I won't ask the specifics, but I'm sure both of those metrics moved in the exact right direction with that initiative. I'm also curious. I worked at an AI company, my last company, um, that was really in, it was in the research and insight space, and they used NLP to help people basically find information more quickly in really dense documents, like bankers used it to make decisions, that kind of thing. But I read about a product that your team was working on and helping develop using NLP that was helping your marketing team and your advertisers make more informed decisions. Can you share a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, I think you're talking about Kaleidoscope, which uh, originally was called Readerscope. And the idea was, particularly when an advertiser is thinking about advertising with the times, it can be kind of hard to figure out what should I be buying, right? Both in terms of like, you know, what audiences, what contexts, and, you know, are these audiences the people that I think they are? How do they consume the time? So we've actually been able to create this product that the backbone of it is on one hand, the audiences. So, you know, you're the gender and the age and the household income and those other kind of standard audiences that again, are first party at this point against a topic model that was created with natural language processing that has more than a hundred different topics like education or football to be able to understand how audiences consume topics or what topics over-index on what audiences and vice versa. It allows you to make kind of a better, more informed decision on what that right audience or context is for you as an advertiser. That's cool. So it's more than NLP. It's actually, you know, leveraging, it's attaching audiences to that theme. So it's way more powerful than 
simply NLP alone, in my opinion. You're, you're attaching a couple of different data sets together. Very cool. So do you have an example maybe of when data might have helped you surface something that surprised you? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. NLP always surprises me with the ability to pick out things that a human wouldn't necessarily see. So, for example, in an early version of that topic model, you know, it was taking all the articles and creating groupings of topics. And as it went along, when it came to the sports articles, it was consistently grouping them into two categories. Now, as a human, I would have said like, hey, there's soccer, there's football, there's hockey, there's baseball, whatever. That's logical. They were grouping them, they, the algorithm. Of <laughs> that, they, <laughs> the, the computers, yeah. Yes, the computers were grouping it by articles that were more of a transactional nature about like reporting on a sporting event versus articles that were about the sport as a whole or an athlete's career or something that was going on in the world of sports. And when you think about it, you do use very different words and themes. But, you know, as a human, that would not have been the first way that I thought to classify those articles. So I I found that a really interesting insight. Definitely. That like that kind of rub between humans and machines right there. I was I was talking to the head of ad operations at this big anime brand, I think like a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying a very similar thing where I was asking him about topic grouping and how they actually do it. And he said the best way to do it is that they use humans, right? There's like still some things that machines, at least like we don't intuit in the same way that they might. Of course, a baseball player and a baseball score are likely more relevant to each other than a baseball score and a hockey score. That might not be the same kind of fan base, but, you know, machines see things. They they see things that maybe we don't. Um, that's really cool. What would you say is your favorite piece of data that you use in your role to drive customer engagement? It's really, really hard to pick favorites, but I'll talk about one that happened just before I joined the Times that was maybe one of the reasons that I joined the Times was I found this so interesting and inspiring. It was called at first Project Feels and the name kind of stuck, but basically we use machine learning to classify all of our articles by the likely emotional response. And you hear about sentiment analysis everywhere. This isn't just like, is this a happy article or is it a sad article? It really gets to very niche emotions like this article makes people feel self-confident or adventurous or nostalgic. And that really allows an advertiser to think about exactly what mood their ad creates and how can they be surrounded by content that matches that mood. And, you know, it's a different way of thinking about how you want to advertise, but in my mind, a really performative one from what we've seen. And we now have more than 30 of these different niche emotional responses that uh, we can link to. That is so cool. Nostalgic adventures. Like those are such specific emotions and nostalgia I'm sure is one they latch on to because aren't there like tons of studies that showcase that it's one of the most powerful emotions to kind of like bring people into a different kind of space. I assume that helps a lot with contextual advertising, but how has Project Feels impacted the way that you're interacting with your advertisers? I mean, what's really cool is it makes it more of a conversation. So with all of these tools, whether it's Kaleidoscope or Feels, you know, or just even the first party audiences themselves, we sit down and have a conversation about what's relevant to you as an advertiser and what do you need. And again, 
because all of these are very privacy forward solutions, we have a really good positive conversation to have about that, which is always really nice. That's so important. I mean, it's something that has been on the top of the minds of advertisers for years now. There's so much legislation from governments with GDPR and CCPA to the platforms who, frankly, are, I think, driving most of the conversation at this point with Google and Apple. Such fear, you know, such fear from advertisers that they won't be able to do that personalization that you were kind of talking about at the very top. And it seems like you've tackled a lot of this at the times and you have this kind of like blueprint for how you're actually creating this data maturity and how you're staying compliant and how you're able to perform over time. So it's awesome to hear this and very inspiring. I'm, I'm hoping for a lot of the people listening in, but that's what you've done so far. What about what's on the horizon? What do you see on the horizon for customer data, for publishing in the next six to 12 months? I think there's really two things, one on the consumer data side and one more just a publishing thing. So on the consumer data side, the obvious answer is the looming cookie apocalypse that we've sort of alluded to a couple of times. You know, although the dates are changing, the fact remains it's coming and we need to find ways to comply. And again, not just with the letter of the law, but with the spirit of it. Customers aren't dumb. And if you do things with your customers' data that they wouldn't expect, you lose their trust and their loyalty, and that's really important. What I'm seeing is kind of three three responses that are going. So one is companies trying to find ways around the restrictions, new ways to connect (laughs) data across the surfaces, and they become more guessy as they go, you know, (laughs) less accurate as they try and kind of go through that. The other two, companies making a bigger effort to get their readers to self-identify so that they can use first-party data. And then the third would be contextual. So other alternatives than audience targeting to make sure that you're hitting the right moment for the ad. Obviously, of those three things, I'm really a fan of those second and third ones. And I think, you know, they're both really important. Contextual is one that once people hit audiences and the age of the DMP, they sort of forgot about contextual, but machine learning has progressed so much since then that there's just so many ways to dive into contextual in really smart and very granular ways that I think is going to be every bit as important as audience. And there's nothing in my mind more privacy compliant than something that's fully contextual because anybody reading that article is going to see that ad like it's nothing about that person personally at that point. You're right. I think it's kind of growing once again. And I was reading about one of IBM's use cases there. And this makes perfect sense. They have weather triggered advertising, you know, yes. so it's like, of course, it's such a specific behavior that's it's time bound. If a, if a nor'easter is blowing through, you know, you're going to want salt, you're going to want shovels and those advertisers are going to want to hit you exactly in that time frame or they lost you. So such an easy example to showcase the power of what that might actually look like. You mentioned a a second trend related maybe to publishing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's a little bit related. I think that there's this more and more crowded subscription services space. Everybody wants first party data. And so the best way to get that is to get people to subscribe. So, you know, it used to be, you'd have like cable, maybe a magazine or two, but now every service is a subscription service and it gets really confusing, right? Like as a consumer, You know, did I sign up for this via Apple? Where do I go to cancel this? It gets really (laughs) crowded. And I think we're going to hit a limit and people are already hitting a limit 
on how many subscriptions they're really comfortable signing up for. And so publishers who maybe before were just competing against other publishers, you're now competing against a whole big space for somebody's sort of subscription budget. It's unbelievable, actually. Uh, you're talking to a cord cutter, so I don't, I've never had cable, but I have reached my limits. I feel like over the past like three to five years, there's just been this absolute proliferation of services. And I'm like, which ones do I actually subscribe to through what? To your point of like, how can I actually like think about canceling this or decreasing what my subscri- subscription looks like? It's so, so hard to keep track, but I'm also like, the content's really good. So what do I... <laughs> What do I do? Rock in a hard place. Who do you think is doing it right as it relates to data and the ways that they're activating it? So I do think the whole Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN combo is interesting. As a parent of young children, you know, the Disney Plus thing was almost an inevitability. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's an interesting, compelling example of putting together kind of a, a range of different things. And of course, like, I'm excited about what The Times is doing along those exact same lines to bring together things like games and cooking and wire cutter and the athletic together to provide that whole well-rounded kind of bundle that's like journalism, recipes, smart fun, you know, kind of along those same lines as as Disney. That's awesome. And I imagine you're trying as much as you can to unify all of those profiles across all of those different brands to make sure you're getting the most out of those customers. That's right. That's awesome. Well, Kendall, my last question for you of the day, if you had any piece of advice that you could give somebody that's trying to build their data foundation, what would it be? Well, you know, I mentioned it a little bit before, but I think the thing that people most overlook is the organization and structure and rules behind their data. And, you know, you don't want it to be so restrictive that you can't explore, create new definitions, but you also don't want it to be so anything goes that you end up with 30 definitions of page view. So if you're really starting out, try and build that in as you go. But if you're already in a working system and you're trying to make it better, I mean, join the club. You know, there are lots of other data people in other companies. We should all be talking through it. We should be reading the articles and figure out with an open mind, what is the best way to organize data going forward? And, you know, we all need to, to really spend some time on that not easy, not fun kind of process. Yeah. It's sometimes the unsexy stuff that is really the thing that drives the business for it. It's so important process, structure, ownership, those clear rules that are building trust within an organization. And if you do have that right structure, you actually can adapt and you can be flexible as well. Kendall, thank you so much. This has been so awesome. I've learned so much from you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital-first economy, being data-driven is no longer aspirational. It's necessary. Segment's leading customer data platform empowers every team with good data. From marketing and product to engineering and analytics, Segment unifies data silos into a single view of the customer. It allows teams to make data-driven decisions and personalize customer engagement in real time, all with one single platform to collect and manage your data. Curious to find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to be their data foundation? You can learn more by visiting segment.com.